You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710-KURV. Here's Sergio. So credit card debt is surging, of course, because of inflation. People, they need to pay the bills. They need to pay for gasoline. They need to buy food and pay the bills. And sadly, too many of them are swiping the credit card. Certified financial planner Michael Davidson is my guest. Mike, at this pace, with credit card debt surging and it's all inflation fueled and inflation likely not to, you know, throttle back anytime soon. When do you think you will? And take guess when do you think that we might reach critical mass when it comes to credit card debt to the point where you swipe that credit card, it ain't going to work anymore, and you can't pay that bill, and you can't get any more cards. When do we finally hit bottom? Do you think? Well, I think we've hit the bottom, and it's it, and the reason why is it's not that it's not necessarily that our credit card balances are too high, although they're growing quickly. the The bottom is that we have been trained that we need to be talking about credit cards, that we have, and we've been trained that we need to use credit cards. We've been trained, hey, what is in your wallet? These are the questions that you're asking. What what are the points that I'm getting? And these are all the wrong questions. When was the last time you saw a, a, a commercial for a debit card? Huh. Uh, when, never, when, was, never. when was the last time you saw a commercial for, hey, what budget plan uh, are you using? Uh, never. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Never. Well, th- there's a reason for that, uh, because financial services firms don't necessarily profit when you use a great budget, mm-hmm. and, they, and uh, they profit less when you use a debit card. And so we need to build spending plans. Everybody needs to have one, and the plan needs to include a plan for giving, a plan for saving, a plan for paying taxes. If we have any debts, paying them off ASAP, Mm -hmm. and then uh, what's left, that's what we can live on. And that's the game plan that we need to be successful. I forget what the thresholds are, but you know, for example, you go in for a big loan, right? Like say home loan. They say, what is it like? One-fourth, one-third, if that's what you're paying for living expenses, then you'll qualify, something like that, right? So break it down for me. When you get a paycheck at the end of the month, how much you set aside for living, food, savings, debt, which savings and debt uh, elimination would be the same. So break it down for me. What do, you, what do you tell people what they should be doing with a paycheck at the end of the month and breaking it down percentage-wise? Well, if, if you have any, the first thing we need to do is quit using a credit card. So leave your credit card at home get rid of it. Do not take it out of the house. You only use a credit card if you're going to borrow something short term, meaning you're going to rent a car and going to bring it back over, you know, in three days. Yeah. Everything else needs to be, be cash or a debit card. So, so first we want to pay off all of our short, our credit card debt immediately. Secondly, we need to build a plan for spending that's healthy moving forward. And we recommend 5% of your income should go to short term savings. 15% should go to long term savings. Uh, and then also, we want to give. What do we want? And, and each of us has a place in our heart for what we should give, and we want to be faithful there. It's a huge feel good, mm-hmm. and so we want we don't want to miss that. We then want to pay our taxes, and then if we have a long term debt, then we want to pay that next. And what's left? That's our living expenses, and we can live on that number alone. And, and it's a lot easier to budget. When you pay for cash and you use a debit card, and you've done the most important things first. Yeah. And so, but uh, we generally right. recommend for homes that you would never spend on your house more than 38% of your net spending. And the net spending is after giving, after taxes, and after savings. You inverted it on me, pal. 
I was I was thinking you were going to say it. right. You were going to say I, I was thinking you were going to say okay, um, pay your bills, pay your mortgage, pay your rent, and then what you got left over, and then chop it down like short term, long term, credit card, taxes, giving all that stuff. But you inverted. You started with all the other stuff first. Why? Well, you're, you have to start with what's important, uh, and, and so the when you that's what the, what Americans do typically is we spend first. And then we, we pay our debts, and then if we have any money left, we give and save. So force well, yourself if to you do, save. If, if you do that, yeah. pardon me? Force yourself to save. That's what I'm hearing from you, Mike. Force yourself to you, save. You, you do it first. Yeah. So, and then and you build your spending plan around what's left, hmm. and if you, it has to be in that order. It's like when you're packing your, your car and you're going on a big vacation. You have to put the big stuff in first and the little stuff will fit around it. Yeah. The big stuff here is your giving and your savings. It has to come first, and then everything else will take care of it. Yeah, itself. I'm the worst of that. I'm the worst of that. I take I take stuff I don't need. I take the kitchen sink first. You know, you're, you're telling the wrong person. That was me and my young one, my ten year old. He takes all his toys, and my wife's saying, "No, you don't need that stuff. You don't pack light. You don't need that stuff." Michael, it's a pleasure meeting you. Take care, brother. We'll call you again. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Certified financial planner, Michael Davidson. This is the Sergio Show. State of Texas kicked in its new Protection of the Unborn. The Texas Human Life Protection Act kicked in. I, I'm guessing it was. Uh, now, I heard that our new abortion regulations, the protections for unborn kids, would kick in about a month after the high court decision. I think it's been more than a month, but either way, I'm going to bring somebody who's watching all this great news for our state, Dr. Ingrid Scott. Director of Medical Affairs, with uh, the effort to protect the unborn. She is a board-certified OBGYN in Texas. Dr. Scott, I appreciate your time. Where are you based, Dr. Scott? I'm in San Antonio. How do you like that compared to North Texas or other parts of the state? You love San Antonio? (laughs) I love San Antonio. I love South Texas. I, I love the area you're from as well. Tell me about your efforts to protect wonderful people. Amen. And the best Mexican food on the planet, better than San Antonio, I have to say. you got to try it. (laughs) Tell me about your efforts to save the unborn. Well, I'll tell you. You know, as an OBGYN, I've always advocated for both of my patients. I've been practicing for 25 years and um, now have the opportunity to speak on this issue full time. Um, I think Texas has the opportunity to lead the way in the country to show how we can care for women in crisis. Um, Our state government has approved $100 million in um, uh, alternatives to abortion funding. So we we really do want to care for women in crisis, but instead of the last 50 years where we've just offered only the opportunity to kill the child as a woman's um, solution to her crisis, we're now going to have the ability to um, support her in so many other ways, emotionally, financially. Um, we need to get fathers involved and, and get them um, here, on here. board with caring for the children that they've created as well. Yep, 10-4. So now that we've got new um, restrictions, regulations in the state of Texas, and I recall a specific definition that Ken Paxton, the attorney general, came up with, I, I think it was like two three weeks ago, that certain unfortunately absolutely necessary medical procedures to protect the mom and also ectopic pregnancies those will not be included in all these 
new restrictions. It's important to remind people of that. Yeah, it's, there's been a lot of fear-mongering about that. And the reality is a law that protects unborn life does not apply to a miscarriage. But I've seen situations where doctors have um, uh, felt that maybe they can't treat a miscarriage. Um, part of the problem is the wow. doctors don't know what the law says because there has not been guidance from our state medical societies like I think there should be. Can, can I press um, the pause button? Can I press we, the pause button, Doc? You just mentioned sure. the state medical societies. And, and mm-hmm. I, I want to press the, the pause button because all I have seen from them, Doc, at the state level, these medical societies, these doctor societies, hospital societies, they've been, they've been doing everything, nothing but complaining, whining, and criticizing Texas, you know, trying to save the life of unborn children. Uh, they, they've been criticizing these laws. Uh, they've been standing on, you know, in defense of Roe v. Wade. I think their agenda drives them to not provide medical guidance to physicians in Texas. What do you think? I think you may be right. I think that there's a progressive uh, pro-choice ideology in the leadership of many medical organizations, but it's important to know that obstetricians on the ground, very few of them provide abortions. Um, it's, uh, surveys have shown only 7 to 14 percent of OBs will do an abortion if their patient asks them. So, interestingly, while the, the, the doctors on the ground are not involved in this abortion advocacy, unfortunately, the leadership of many of the organizations are, um, which, is, which is unfortunate. But that's why you're, you're seeing um, the leadership not taking a stand or taking a stand in opposition, mm-hmm. trying to turn the American people against these laws by uh, fomenting confusion so that doctors don't know when they can intervene. There are, it's rare, but there are times that a doctor does need to separate a woman from her child because of a life-threatening crisis. But the reality is most of the time that happens in the second half of pregnancy, we can save babies at about 22 weeks gestation out of a 40-week pregnancy, so a little over halfway through. So as a pro-life OB-GYN, when I've encountered those situations, I deliver the woman in a medically standard way. I induce her labor or, if appropriate, do a C-section. Many times the baby can be saved, but even if he can't, I've saved the mother, and I've done a more humane procedure than the dismemberment D&E abortion, which is what would be done at that point in pregnancy if the intention was to do an abortion. So even though the state allows abortion, I would argue it's very rarely necessary to do a direct abortion. An ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion. That is a standard um, medical procedure for Mm -hmm. a life-threatening risk to a mother because women have died from internal bleeding if an ectopic pregnancy was not treated. She came to us from folks in Texas, Human Life, um, and she's she's a board-certified OBGYN in Texas, based in Central Texas, San Antonio, Dr. Ingrid Scott is my guest right now. And I must say, doctor, that these medical societies, and we speak with leadership and folks who represent them, and they are supposed to provide guidance on policy, development of state law, and provide information, you know, get deep into the weeds on what certain laws and proposals have. You know, if, they are, if they're not pr- providing that policy update and reassurance and guidance on what the new state law is is providing it's a real disservice and i don't see why some of these physicians should even con- continue providing their annual dues 
for these societies because uh, <laughs> it, it's the law. It's here. Provide guidance for it. And I hope they, they are providing guidance. And you would know, I, I would imagine you're a member of some of these societies. I mean, have they provided some of that guidance? To you as an OBGYN? Oh, no, absolutely. And in fact, um, the American Board of OBGYN, which is based out of Dallas, um, has threatened the, the, the OBGYNs who want to, uh, who speak on a pro-life position. They've threatened them with removing their board certification. Wow. ACOG has, 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 has removed its um, board certification. The board certification exams have left Texas because they're so angry with Texas because inexplicably, we're standing up for both patients, the mother and the child. Um, so it's a, it's a battle of ideologies, honestly, but um, I think we're going to be able to show in Texas that women are going to thrive and do much better when we provide other options other than just abortion. I, I want to say, um, because you're in South Texas, I want your listeners to be aware that there is a push from outside of Texas to promote mail-order medical abortion. Um, there's also a push um, to advertise to women to cross the border to Progresso and some of the other uh, border towns to obtain mesoprostol, which is the second component of the medical abortion pill. Um, so they're, they're promoting illegal abortions in South Texas. Um, and women should be aware that mesoprostol fails in about 25, in about one out of four women, they have to have surgery. Mm. Um, unsupervised medical abortion fails in about one out of 20 women. So just, I, I, I just want your the listeners to be aware that very dangerous illegal abortions are being promoted in South Texas. Sounds to me like these big, well-funded medical societies should be buying some Spanish advertising and specifically communicating the dangers of mesoprostol by mail going into Mexico. But no, I again, I think they'd be hampered by their ideology, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, Doc, how do folks find you, Doc, in case they have any questions or maybe work with you and folks that are un fighting on behalf of the unborn? Sure. Yeah, the American people need to be educated, um, and, and um, there is a lot of um, information available. I'm with the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Our um, website is lozierinstitute.org. Um, additionally, there is an American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. It's AAPLOG.com. Um, both of those websites have quite a bit of information about um, medical aspects of abortion that uh, your listeners should be aware of. Thank you, Dr. Scott, and look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you so much for your information. Dr. Andrew Scott, joining us on 710KURV from Central Texas, San Antonio, board certified OBGYN. This is the Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids. To running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news. And to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Lisa Skinner is a specialist in Alzheimer's and dementia issues, and I 
We're calling her today to see if she can give us a heads up on foods that would shorten your life expectancy, maybe even mess with your memory. Lisa, it's a pleasure speaking with you. So University of Michigan compiled a list of some pretty popular foods they said would increase or decrease life expectancy. So let's start on the decreased life expectancy. Let's get the bad news out of the way first. What do you see, Lisa? Yeah, according to this recent study, they evaluated over 5,800 foods and ranked them according to, or they assigned them using a metric um, that a, a specific food will either add minutes to your life expectancy mm-hmm. or deduct minutes. And so they they provided a list of foods from the best ones that you can eat to the worst ones that you can eat. So mm-hmm. basically, the long and the short here is, according to their study, one of the worst foods that we can eat is a hot dog on a white bun. Okay. And there's actually, they didn't go into a lot of detail about this, but I just know from um, a lot of studies that have shown a correlation between the foods we eat and the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, that the reason why the hot dog um, probably ended up being one of the worst foods is because a hot dog is processed meat with um, probably nitrates in them and all kinds of. What's a nitrate? Let, let's yeah, I hear that all the. What's a nitrate? What is it? Why is why is it so deleterious? Why why is it so bad for you? Because it causes inflammation. Okay. And there is also a correlation between inflammatory foods that cause inflammation in our bodies and our brains and developing Alzheimer's disease. So the recommendation really is to to follow a diet that is aligned with what they call the Mediterranean diet. So eat more complex carbohydrates, nuts, legumes, green leafy vegetables versus hot dogs and uh, fast food and sugary things and white bread. These are all things that increase a person's risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. How about canceling out, uh, you know, negative and a positive, you know, take a hot dog, but then eat a side of salad with some sprinkled nuts and maybe blueberries or things. Can you cancel out all the, the bad stuff with good stuff? Well, no, it doesn't really work that way. It's really best to implement I mean, I'm not saying that you should never eat a hot dog. It's 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 not about ditching the hot dog. Yeah. It's really about being conscientious about uh, the foods you put in your mouth and your body. And there is something really true about you are what you eat, especially when it comes to um, your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And there are scientists know that it has to do with lifestyle choices. And um, environment and genetics all play a role. So it's not just the foods we eat alone. It's the combination of everything. I call them the risk factors. There are many, many risk factors that go into determining whether or not a person 
uh, likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease is increased or decreased. Mm-hmm. And that's a, another entire, you know, conversation. Yeah. Uh, people can find out uh, more information about that topic on my website, uh, truthliesalzheimers.com. But just for, you know, takeaway today, uh, the things that we start implementing into our lives immediately, whether you're 19, 23, 35, uh, all play a role in um, determining your risk factor of developing Alzheimer's disease starting at the yeah. age of 65, because that's typically when it starts to show up. Okay. And then every five years after the age of 65, that uh, risk increases substantially, like doubles every five yeah. years. I prep my hot dogs Mexico City style, which would be <laughs> yeah, uh, pico, lots of slices of avocado, and uh, we, re- we super toast some bacon. Like get all the fat and get just kind of crunch it all on top of there. And uh, yeah, that's and on cilantro. I forgot the cilantro. It's kind of like a taco, <laughs> uh, but it's you know <laughs> if we don't eat it daily, which is the advantage. And and you know what? I'd like to find out from the University of Michigan. How did they calculate that each hot dog that you eat shortens your life by thirty six minutes? Like, how did you get to that number specifically thirty six? Or do you think they're just pulling that number out of their ear, Lisa? Well. No, according to what they're saying is that um, they evaluated over 5,800 foods and developed a metric based on their research Uh and assigned food um, an amount of time that will either increase your life expectancy or decrease. And it's all based on um, the food group that they belong to because, uh, you know, for example... Peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I was about to tell you. But really, the reason why peanut butter and jam sandwich was assigned the the uh, number that it was assigned. Yeah, a good number. Peanuts are known as being brain food. Peanut butter. The, the peanut is brain food. Peanuts are. And peanut butter is made of peanut. Okay. Made out of peanut. So that's so why. They're like, okay. That and might. they're one of the recommended foods to eat for uh, decreasing your risk of developing Alzheimer's love disease. Love it, yeah. That, that I agree. Um, I don't know about daily, but yeah, I, I love an occasional PB&J. Tall glass of milk on the side. That's, that's how to wash it down for me. Lisa, it's a pleasure. Again, tell folks how to find you uh, and all the work that you do uh, to fight Alzheimer's and dementia. Where do they find you, Lisa? They can find me at www.truth liesalzheimers.com and there is a new book out by the same name um, only add its secret faces and it's available on Amazon and all the fine booksellers truth lies alzheimers.com you take care friend we'll talk to you Lisa Skinner Alzheimer's Dementia Expert this is the Sergio Show
start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's morning news. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's morning news with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. You steaming this morning going back to work? You just chomping at the bit, waiting for an opportunity to say, two weeks or I quit. You just can't stand the people you work with, can't stand the environment that you're in. Okay, so let's let cooler heads prevail. Let me bring in a friend that's going to help us right now. Dr. Jane Gardner is a business strategist. So, Dr. Jane, tell folks a little bit what you do day-to-day to pay the bills. What do you do for a living, Dr. Jane? Well, thanks for asking. I build trust cultures because I know they pay off, and they pay off in profitability, productivity, and lower attrition rates. Let's say you encounter, I'm sure you have, a very toxic work environment, managers, employees, even employees of employees, they don't trust each other, stabbing each other in the back as often as they can. It doesn't seem to be an, an ideal work environment. How do you address a toxic work environment? When you land on the ground, Dr. Jane, what do you do? First of all, we have to begin with building trust because it's just like Sergio a marriage. If you don't have trust, it's going to end. And I think a lot of the culture vultures that, you know, are out there really trying to create these toxic cultures are based on fear. I think employers are fearful right now, but it doesn't help because employees out there do need some advice on what to do. I got three things they can do in a bad culture to righten it and to feel better. Would one of those be, you know how they they ask somebody to stand on the table, right? And then they get the employees behind that person and say, okay, fall back, allow yourself to fall back, and then the employees have to catch that person. Is that how you're going to start building trust? Because in a toxic work environment, some people might be walking away, (laughs) letting that person hit the ground, right? uh, Wow, we used to do that in the old days. (laughs) Today, what we do is we help people express their emotions first because here's what happens if we don't get those emotions out the data you know ceos always tell me they're data driven but the problem with data being data driven is that if you don't emotionally regulate you know your brain shuts down and you can't think when your emotions so my first step to help you out there in this culture toxicity is to establish a place you can go to scream. I call it a scream <laughs> stop. <laughs> I know, but it works. Okay. It works. It, research shows that if you get it out, you tame it. They say name it to tame it. And if you scream, you actually, as a result, you create this hormone called oxytocin. And it, it's a happy hormone. So it relieves the stress, first of all. And that's what you have to do right okay. now. Get some relief from the Solo or with your fellow employees or the people that you got a beef with? Are you screaming 
Just by yourself no. or with your colleagues? Yeah. With your colleagues? I, I think go outside. Well, here's what I advise employers to have a screen room, to have <laughs> a, a closet or a workroom that you can actually soundproof and let that employee go in there and scream. But if you don't have that, walk outside, walk to your car, sit down, scream. Do it in a by yourself because you will not when you're out of control you're going to say things that are reactionary you're not going to be pleased yeah. with your relationships when you take are reactive in them good luck taking that back after you scream i thought maybe you were setting up uh, like a therapy session with all the employees at the place that they could scream i had the perfect place uh, for us to be clayton's uh bar and grill on south padre island right on the beach you can scream all you want at each other, and it's not going to go downwind much with all the sound of the ocean. But you're talking about finding a, one place for employees mm-hmm. on their own to go vent, yeah. uh, just you know, vent and uh, chill out, and then come back after they get all that stuff uh, out of their system. That's the, all right. Yes, that's the first thing you have to all right. break through that. Well, you mentioned three first. things. What, the, what yeah. are the other two things you'd recommend? You know folks do to, to try to calm things down and create a better work environment? Well, first of all, you have to get your boss to give you some clear metric-driven goals. Because if, if, you if you're having goals you're getting, being graded off of and you really don't know what you're even be grading for or are being paid you know, to do, you're going to not do as well as if you know exactly. So talk to your boss and get exactly what you're being judged on. Okay. The other thing is to count your wins. I know this sounds crazy, but you're going to have to do this yourself. Nobody is really going to save you out there. Count every day. Keep a a list or keep it in your head and tell yourself you did good, you know, and and congratulate yourself when you do something (laughs) right. That inner voice we have usually only tells us you goofed up, dummy. So try to change that voice a little bit inside you. But you're going to have to support I know exactly how I'm going to tell myself I did a great. I'm going to go down to Delia's Tamales, get a dozen delicious chicken cheese tamales. <laughs> saying, sir, you did a wonderful. Here's, here's your tamales for today. <laughs> All right. It's a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. J. Thanks for putting up with me. Yeah, all, uh, nice to meet you. Sir. Yeah, all, all the great advices for today. Again, that's Dr. Jane Gardner, business strategist. This is the Sergio Show. Cassville School District in the state of Missouri made the news a few days back because they were going to reinstate corporal punishment. A caveat is a last resort with written permission from mom and dad. Okay. Dr. Dean Beckloff is my guest. Dr. Dean, tell folks how you pay the bills day to day. What do you do, Dr. Dean? (laughs) I am a mental health uh, therapist for kids and families in Dallas, and we have a center called the Beckloff Behavioral Health Center. Where do you stand on the issue, spare the rot, spoil the child? Where do you stand on that? Bait them. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. I, uh, well, I'll tell you, my, I grew, I'm pretty old. I grew up in the 50s and the 60s. My parents raised me during that time period. And, of course, everyone used a paddle. Of course. It was the first thing that my parents grabbed a hold of whenever there was any issue. And, of course, they went too far time. I'll just say that. Okay. Uh, you probably, I don't know if you were raised with paddling and spanking. Yes. That's, that's and that, the way it was. yes, that thread, yeah. it worked on me. Pal. I'm an only child. 
but I I don't recall except for one time when I was a little kid, uh, and my dad gave me you no know, with a whooping. I mean, it it wasn't it wasn't that bad. It was like you know my, in my tush like whack whack whack. That got my attention. My dad only had to like knock on knock on wood, knock on the table, like you know, knock knock knock, and I knew dad was upset, and I, I would stop. So I always feared uh, the rod. For example, it worked on me. Other kids seem right. to be more. You know, bullheaded. But anyway, um, I was so going to yeah, go ahead. I sir. started my career when I was uh, in 1980 as a school teacher, and they <laughs> gave me two things to get to work. They gave me a grade book because there were no computers then in the schools, and a paddle, and hmm. said, "Have at those sixth graders." The board so, of education. I, you know, I tried using it some, but I never really felt comfortable with it, and so I finally decided I'm going to try to do other things. And I became known. This is what this is an old thing. No, this is just the facts. No brag. No brag. Just facts. I was known as the teacher who had excellent classroom management and my students excelled at learning. And that was demonstrated on their standardized tests too. Okay. Um, so I had had that paddle used a lot growing up. So when it, my kids came along, I had gone too far, or my parents had gone too far, and you know, you kind of do, you repeat history, and knowing that, I decided I'm not going to use spanking, but I'm going to raise them. We had limits, we had consequences, and we also worked on helping them to think. And, you know, I had to do a lot of thinking, too, because a paddle's easy. You just pick it up and start using it. But when you're having negative behavior in your child, you can also, it forces you to do a little bit of thinking. So, uh, you know, my kids are good. They're adults now and raising their families and went to college. And I, I, I know that that is not research, but if you want to get into the pure research of it, it, it doesn't look good. Now, we have 50 to 60% of most Americans who feel like a good, swift, hard spanking will help, right? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm there, Doc. But like, I'll just maybe I reveal a little too much on the radio. But um, my my older one, uh, he had. I mean, he's, he's probably like me. Like my wife said, he's got too much of you uh, in him. He was a he was bullheaded, and he's just a baby. He's just a little kid. Look, and I grab his little hand, so hold my hand. You stand still, close your eyes, and I I swat him several times on. You know, get him on his, on his tush, pow, pow. Yeah. So I, yeah. Daddy done. I love you. Daddy done looked. But you tell me what you did wrong. One, two, three. But that stopped at a real young age, buddy. Not that he started. He stopped misbehaving to the point where he needed. Right. But I, I'm trying to remember at what age I told him, and it was small. Like I'm thinking, like maybe seven or eight maybe. when he started understanding. I said, yeah. I said, yeah. baby, you're, you are too old. For me to to spank you, you're too old for this, yeah. uh, son. I'm, and I would curtail. I would, that was like last resort for me. I would curtail. And with him at work, because with my baby, my other son, my little one, he's a special needs boy. It's it, we treat him different. But with my older yeah. one, it's like uh, I would take sugar away, with TV away, all the fun stuff, and it worked. And it was a last resort. I didn't have to spank him very much, but I, I had to, and I hated it. But I told yeah. at one point, I told him, look. 
you're too old for this, son. I'm going to make your life miserable. Otherwise, you understand what's right around. You understand what's going on. And I'm not going to spank you anymore, son. It's, it's just, you're going to feel the pain some, somewhere else. So I'm, I'm thinking, because that's what I want to ask about, the diminishing returns based on age. I mean, at a certain point, they wake up. Uh, they're aware of right and wrong. And there's got to be other ways to take care of business. Well, and you, you really should. I mean, I'm not going to say that one spanking or once in a blue moon every now and then is going to harm the kids. But we know a steady diet of that is going. I mean, it, it, look at these kids who have been really abused by by their parents, yeah. and they get them taken away from them because they've just been physically harming their kids. Yeah. We know that hurts the the kid growing up and what we really know too this is very interesting to me that a steady diet that is lighting up the lower part of the brain which we call the threat center well if you get a steady diet of that threat center lighting up all the time that's where the kid's going to go and when they get to adulthood they can see everything as a threat and i've often wondered why are these people who are being arrested why are they resisting? All it takes is just listen to the police. You're not going to be harmed, but you see these people fighting and getting hurt yeah. in the process or yeah. shot. Yeah. And I think it's because their threat centers are lit up and they cannot think about what they need to be thinking about, which mm-hmm. is don't resist. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. Well, you brought up something I've never heard of before, because uh, I'm thinking uh, some of these people get themselves in trouble with law enforcement. Uh, maybe they had no instruction. Maybe they had no guidance. Maybe they had no parents explaining to them what um, proper respect for authority was. You just, you just, and it, they yeah. may have had parents that were beating them, you know, mm-hmm. and so they learned to have that part of their brain light up instead of the upper cort- frontal cortex which, you know, as human beings, we have a big one. And helping a kid grow by moving up there to think, use language, think, that's where they start managing emotions. You can't manage your emotions if you're in the threat center of the brain. You can't manage it. If you're up in your prefrontal cortex, you have a better chance of managing emotions, thinking it through. And that's where we want our kids to be doing you know thinking of thinking helping them think and reason all right come let us reason together by the way this big frontal cortex that you speak of uh what do i buy some for my sales staff i, I could really use this, some of those um, <laughs> all right where do they find I you do- <laughs> where do they find you dr d online where, where do folks find you drbecklove.com b-e-c-k-l-o-f-f you be safe brother we'll talk to you soon this is the Sergio Show. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have a In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com.
You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. The founder of 2020 Lives Changed is Sherry James. Sherry, good to talk to you again. So on social media, warnings not to call 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Why, Sherry? Uh, well, uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, well, one of the reasons that, you know, we're seeing things on social media um, is because there are situations where people are calling the 988 number. Um, that city or state may not have the capacity or the staff to answer. Oof. And in a very few cases, it's rolling over to 911, and those people are being forcibly hospitalized. Um, sometimes incarcerated, um, and so there are some oh, wow. situations where that's happening. Okay, so yeah, there was a lot of noise on that suicide line going, um, you know, turning on a few days back, about a month ago, I think, or, or so. And yeah, July sixteenth. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was. So it's supposed to be administered yeah. by the by the states, and they're supposed to staff it at the state level. That that's correct. So I mean, the 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 nine eight eight number went federal, um, and the centers were already there. So um, the suicide crisis hotline already had call centers um, that were just there waiting for those calls. Anyway, nine eight eight just gave people a better an opportunity to better remember the number. Yeah. To be, you know, to make it easier to dial. But if it's not properly staffed, and um, as you said, it, it rolls over to 911, and, hey, are you in trouble? Are you suicidal? Then they send an ambulance, and it just, uh, just descends from there. People get in a bad situation. It, uh, it can, right? It wow. can. But in, in more cases than what we hear about on social media, what's actually happening is that if the state is receiving more calls than their staff for, it's actually rolling over to another center. Um, and so just like with most things, you don't hear about all the good things and uh, you just hear about the bad ones, right? So um, there are a lot of cases, um, much more than what we are hearing about on social media, where the case, you know, it's actually working. People are able to connect with the person who is trained and ready for their call. Um, and like I said, each state has the capacity to roll calls over okay. that have been abandoned in their own state to another, um, to a, a different call center. Mental health and suicide prevention counselor Sherry James, my guess, that 988 suicide crisis lifeline that went online several weeks back. Uh, I guess they're working out the kinks and uh, trying to iron out some of the the creases and, and bumps to this thing. Hopefully they do, because when somebody picks up a phone, Sherry, and they're dialing 988, somebody actually takes the time to do that. They are in real trouble. What What do you know? What do you see in your personal experience when they make that phone call? Absolutely. Um, I will say that, you know, the crisis hotline is is exactly that. Um, it's when a person finds themselves in a crisis and just needs to talk. It's not always that they are necessarily suicidal. And what I'm finding is that people are starting to call that number earlier and earlier. So when they first start feeling those signs of suicidal ideation or self-harm, um, it's before they get into that actual you know, planning to do the act, which is great news. And that might be getting mixed up and covered up uh, with this, what's not working well. But what's really working is that more people are calling um, now these centers have data to say, here's how many, <clears throat> sorry, here's how many people need to actually be hired. 
we know that now because we have data. We okay. see the abandonment abandonment rate. Okay. So yeah, so it's it's a it's the first month that rolled out July sixteenth. So yeah, we're still rolling out kinks, but well, um, it's definitely better than it was before. Sure. Hopefully, like you said, hopefully they know now how many people to hire because I would imagine those will be very long conversations when people need to talk talk things out and uh, you need to mm-hmm. talk somebody down from mm-hmm. from the ledge. Sherry, if you could. And tell us why you went down this path. 2020 lives change and your personal experience when it comes to suicide and, and um, suicide prevention. It's a, tell, us about, tell us your story, your family. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I, my story is a little backwards, backwards, I guess, because I did um, a little over 30 years in corporate America and different leadership roles. Um, and I became an expert at hiding my mental uh, challenges with my dad having died by suicide when I was seven, um, and my mom similarly so at 20, when I was 27. And so I just grew up with this uh, um, a tremendous amount of shame and guilt about what and how my parents died. And so I, I never talked about it. And in 2018, um, after some extensive therapy after a divorce, um, my therapist found that, you know, I had been holding on to this trauma for my entire life, and I decided to do tra- uh, trauma therapy, EMDR, um, a lot of things to heal through that trauma. And I remember thinking if I knew someone that, I, you know, that did this, if I knew that people were actually working on their past traumas, I would probably have done it earlier. So I decided in 2019 wow. to start 2020 Lives Change, thinking I would only change 2020 Lives. Um, but in 2020, all lives changed. And so it has definitely broadened the scope of our organization. Our goal is to have these conversations well before the need for a crisis hotline arises. Um, so yeah, we're just educating people to tell them like there's someone there every day and here's what you do to keep that from accumulating and building up to the point that you feel that you need, um, you know, to, to consider suicide. She is author of After the Suicide, Leading with Love and Life, counselor to folks that are fighting depression and suicide is Sherry James. Call again, Sherry. Appreciate your time today. This is The Sergio Show.